and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Daniel B. Rice, an associate at the Georgetown University Law Center Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. We will discuss his article, Non-Enforcement by Accretion, the Logan Act and the Take Care Clause, which is published in the Harvard Journal on Legislation. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Yes, I know. This is this is all my pleasure. This um, I, I want to say the article is like super timely because the Logan Act has been in the air in the last, you know, three years or so. But reading your paper, I realized it's like perennially timely because it seems like the Logan Act has been on one person or another's lips for like the last 200 years or something, 200 plus years. So it's kind of amazing. And it was a really a fun, it was a fun read as well as being a really kind of provocative way of thinking about kind of the structure of the executive and, and the nature of executive responsibility. Um, but, but I wonder if you could start by just kind of explaining for listeners who may not be, you know, highly active on Twitter at the moment, um, exactly what the Logan Act is, sort of when and why was it enacted and what was it intended to do? Sure. So the Logan Act is a 220-year-old federal criminal statute that has amazingly served as the basis for exactly zero prosecutions over the course of American history. So it was enacted in 1799 after a Philadelphia Quaker and physician named George Logan uh, sailed to Paris at the height of an undeclared naval war between the United States and France. Um, He thought he could smooth over relations in a way that the Adams administration had proved uh, incapable of doing. Um, So when Logan returned to Philadelphia, which was then the nation's capital, um, Federalists in Congress and in the administration were absolutely furious at him. Um, They thought he had, uh, you know, blatantly usurped the executive prerogative to conduct diplomacy on behalf of the United States. And they thought there should be some criminal consequences for doing that. So in relatively short order, uh, Congress passed what um, history has come to know as the Logan Act. Um, and this, this is a, a pretty gross oversimplification, but in brief, what the Logan Act does is uh, criminalize certain unauthorized efforts to uh, interfere with American foreign policy um, through direct communication with foreign governmental officials. Um, it, doesn't prohib- it doesn't purport to prohibit any conversations with foreign governmental officials, but only ones uh, with a, with a relatively, in, in a relatively uh, narrow domain um, as, as confined by the mens rea. Of the statute, right? So, pretty remarkably, uh, just to repeat what I said earlier, because it's so striking, um, there have been no prosecutions under this act for 220 years, right? So, there have been only two indictments. The first was in 1803, and the second was in 1852. Neither one of those indictments, though, was pursued past the initial phase. So, it's, I mean, so it's kind of a contemporary of like the Alien and Sedition Acts, right? But like, for some reason, they got they got reversed or they got taken out, but the Logan Act kind of just stayed in in the U.S. code? That's exactly right. So the, the Alien and Sedition Acts, my understanding is they contain sunset provisions that meant they automatically expired at the end of, a, I think it was a two-year period. But the Logan Act, for whatever reason, um, probably because the Federalists were so you know, incensed at what George Logan had done, did not contain a similar sunset provision. So the act remains on the books. Um, 
until it's repealed. And that, that moment hasn't arrived just yet. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about those two initial indictments that were never pursued, because it's kind of interesting to think about like why the indictment would have been filed and sort of why it wasn't pursued. And then also, as I understood it from your paper, one of the two was actually sort of had been forgotten. Yeah, that's right. So the first indictment occurred in 1803. Um, a man named Francis Flournoy, I think I'm pronouncing that right, um, a Kentuckian, had written a letter in a newspaper proposing that parts of the Western United States secede from the United States proper and ally themselves with um, part of what was then um, French territory in North America. Um, that that letter, th- the purpose behind that letter became mooted um, as the United States acquired uh, much of um, you know what what is today the Western or I guess Central United States with the Louisiana Purchase. So um, that indictment um, had no legs after <laughs> after uh, that occurrence happened. Um, and the second uh, occurrence was in 1852. So a man named Jonas Levy wrote a letter to the president of Mexico um, in an effort to. I think this was in in relation to a, a proposed treaty between Mexico and the United States about who would have certain rights to build a railroad across either a peninsula or an isthmus in Mexico. I'm not, I, I'm not sure which. But what, what fascinates me about this particular incident is that, as you said, um, everyone seems to have completely forgotten about it. Um, for all Logan Act commentary and, and articles that mentioned the act um, from, from the beginning until my piece, it, it seems that um, there was only one indictment. You know, that occurred in 1803. Um, if, you, if you just Google the Logan Act and read any news article, uh, article before you know 2017 or 2018, um, there will be you know repeated assertions that only one indictment has occurred, um, and through the use of some you know unconventional search terms, um, I found that in fact Jonas Levy was indicted in 1802 at the behest of Secretary of State Daniel Webster, and my understanding is that that indictment wasn't pursued because Levy's lawyers um, challenged the Secretary of State to produce the actual letter that Jonas Levy had written to the president of Mexico, and more particularly the basis for the indictment. And unsurprisingly, the president of Mexico was uh, unwilling to furnish that correspondence to the American government. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah, wow. <clears throat> so so why is this, that there have been, that there were so few indictments and really no prosecutions at all. I mean, is it because people just didn't think there was any, like there was never a violation or someone no one ever called for it or what, what happened? Like, why hasn't this ever been pursued? Yeah, that's, that's the million dollar question. And the reason I think that it's such a good question and that the absence of prosecution is such a bizarre, a bizarre phenomenon is because this statute was enacted to reinforce the president's constitutional authority to conduct diplomacy on behalf of the United States. Um, As I say in the article, this is arguably the most pro-presidential statute in all of American history. If there's a more executive-friendly enactment, I'm not aware of one. Um, So in the paper, um, I I go through... um, after having like organized my research notes to try to provide some transparency for these non-enforcement decisions. So when the executive in the past has failed to enforce the act, those individual decisions are almost never accompanied by like clear statements for the reasons for declining a particular prosecution. So what I did in my research was try to reconstruct those decisions to provide some accountability for these non-enforcement choices. Uh, and and the, the second main reason why I wanted to go ahead and do this was 
Um, if if non-enforcement of the Logan Act was motivated by constitutional concerns, then arguably, you know, that that's perfectly fine under the Take Care Clause. There's, I think, a general consensus that good faith constitutional objections can be a reason not to enforce uh, a federal statute. Um, so, so what I found was that non-enforcement of the act has almost never been accompanied by uh, an open assertion of unconstitutionality. The, in fact, the clearest statement to that effect I found was from a single anonymous um, uh, attorney in the State Department legal advisor's office who said to an, a newspaper reporter in 1972 that uh, attorneys in that office had long viewed the act as so vague as to be unenforceable. But I, I found nothing to corroborate that assertion as actually influencing the executive's enforcement decisions in any other context. Um, so to get back to your um, question, though, I'll just I'll sort of tick through these reasons uh, as quickly as I can, and then I'd be happy to um, to return to any of them if you'd like. So um, I've, I've told, um, 12 reasons why I think the act has gone unenforced. These are um, overlapping in certain respects. I'm not claiming that they're totally comprehensive, but I think this sort of battery of explanations um, does a lot of explanatory work. So first, some violations, you know, surely didn't um, harm the executive of the nation enough to warrant enforcement. And I think maybe related to that is the fact that, you know, prosecuting anyone uh, under under a, a federal criminal statute sends the message that that person has, like, harmed the national interests enough to warrant a deprivation of liberty. And for, you know, with respect to people who are just these like minor meddlers who sort of monkey around um, on their frolics overseas, you know, prosecuting them would send, would send the message that the executive felt that its interests were you know, gravely harmed by what they did. And, um, you know, not prosecuting them can be actually be a signal of strength in those situations, interestingly. Um, reason number two is that prosecuting anyone would almost certainly amplify their viewpoints um, and, and transform them into martyrs, which is something the executive, um, after it has been, you know, frustrated in that way, um, might not uh, be eager to, to do. The third reason that I've identified is that you know, perhaps the only people who are capable of, of inflicting the kind of harm that would warrant a prosecution are very, they tend to be very famous. So like members of Congress, um, you know, celebrities, you know, movie stars, people like that. And, you know, I, I can understand why administrations might be a little uh, hesitant to prosecute, you know, the Henry Fords and the, the Jane of the world, right? So reason four is a lot of potential Logan Act violators have been um, presidential candidates. Um, so Richard Nixon um, literally conspired with the South Vietnamese government to um, undermine his um, his opponent, uh, Hubert Humphrey, in the 1968 election. Like That was a clear-cut violation of the Logan Act, and President Johnson knew about it um, at the time, called it treason um, in, in confidence with his advisors. But you can understand why he might not want to you know, prosecute the opposing party's presidential candidate. The fifth reason that I've identified is that a lot of Logan Act violations are in service of doing highly humanitarian things, right? So a lot of Logan Act violators or Loganeers, as I affectionately call them in my paper, are trying to, you know, reduce starvation. They're trying to avert genocide. You know, they want there not to be nuclear war, right? So just imagine the outcry that would result if people like that or, you know, sent to a federal penitentiary for up to three years. Um, this The sixth reason that I identify, I'm sorry, this is so long, but uh, it's hard to among my babies here. <laughs> the, 
the sixth reason I identify is that a lot of um, key members of administrations almost certainly violated the Logan Act themselves before taking office. And if there were a culture of aggressive Logan Act enforcement, their own behavior before taking office would become subject to, if not official investigations, you know, the kind of scrutiny that that would be a major distraction and that they you know, wouldn't want to, to have. The seventh reason is that a lot of um, presidents and secretaries of state, attorneys general, you know, understand that they, they need something to do after their administrations expire. And, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to stay in contact with your um, overseas interlocutors. And that has manifested occasionally in, you know, presidents or I guess ex-presidents continuing to be, you know, self-appointed diplomats and to try to resolve um, some diplomatic crises that have befallen the nation after their, their periods of service have ended. So I actually I don't actually know if administrations uh, have enough foresight to be thinking about this prospectively, like while they're still in office, but I can, I can at least imagine why they might be hesitant to enforce the act if it would hamstring their post-presidential activity. The eighth reason is that um, lots of uh, potential Logan Act violators would be members of a president's own party, and it could be you know deeply uncomfortable to to prosecute their political allies in that way. And um, you know many Logan Act violators have also had personal relationships with with the presidents or the attorney general and the like. So prosecuting those sorts of people could be deeply uncomfortable. The ninth reason, and the one that I think may actually have the most explanatory purchase, is that. The executive branch often needs private citizens to solve problems that um, official intergovernmental relations just can't, right? So there, there have been times um, throughout history when relations with other nations have broken down um, and where we're like almost at war, but it would just be devastating if war were to result. Um, and so in those sorts of situations, like, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? And in those sorts of situations, administrations need someone who isn't publicly um, aligned and identified with the administration to talk to these pariah regimes, um, to, to try to smooth things over through back channels. Um, and, and they need to be close enough to the administration to project an ability to bind the administration um, in, in these sorts of secret deals, but distant enough um, so that they're not like identified with the regime that is um, that, that refuses to maintain relations with um, the, these our foreign counterparts. And the interesting thing about uh, this, and the reason why enforcing the Logan Act would make um, these sorts of back-channel negotiations almost impossible, is that if we if we had a culture of routine for enforcement of the act, um, any time a president sort of privately deputized someone to solve these crises in a, in a sort of private way, uh, reporters would have you know just a massive incentive to identify the exact level of authorization that, that an administration had bestowed on these sort of... Um, you know, private go-betweens that the administrations had chosen. And so that would uh, gravely frustrate president's ability to solve international crises um, in, in that sort of way. Um, so on to the ninth reason. Um, I'm sorry, I, I guess I'm on number 10 now. <laughs> um, this is one of my absolute favorites. So a lot of major foreign policy triumphs throughout American history were arguably done in violation of the Logan Act, right? And enforcing the act after these sort of grand triumphal moments would um, it would be not only deeply uncomfortable, but just uh, it would seem really, really unfair to prosecute people who say um, acquire, you know, 525,000 square miles of territory in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, or who saved, you know, hundreds of lives um, in, you know, prisoner, prisoner of war um, exchanges and things like that. So the 11th reason that I identify is that Logan Act um, violations often occur 
um, in privacy, where it's like only the violator and the particular foreign official who is the subject of the conversation. So there are um, evidentiary difficulties in enforcing the act. I mean, just imagine like trying to call like the emperor of you know some country or the foreign minister of some country in an American court. I'm not I'm not sure how that would happen procedurally, even if it did. Um, who knows like what could happen if they actually got in court and testified. So the hesitancy to risk any of that you know, could be a reason why the act goes unenforced. And then finally, and the 12th reason I identify is that non-enforcement of the act is is sticky, right? The, the very historical practice of non-enforcement um, is self-perpetuating. I, I've identified a number of reasons in the paper, or sorry, a number of instances in which administrations, when asked you know, why they're not enforcing the Logan Act have said, well, well, no one's ever enforced it before. You know, this act has never gone enforced. And why, basically, why should we be the first ones to do it here? So the, the Logan Act has taken on a certain use it or lose equality. And it's my contention that we have decidedly lost it, right? The Logan Act is no longer regarded as, as a law of the United States whose enforcement is constitutionally required. Um, it's 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 the source of much mockery, and as you mentioned on Twitter, whenever you know plausible Logan Act incidents occur, people say, "Oh, it's never the Logan Act, right?" You know, the Logan Act can't be used here. Um, and administrations have felt that sort of imperative and sort of internalized that that inability to actually use the statute for its intended purpose. And I'll stop there, mercifully. <laughs> right. So, I mean, with with a dozen reasons not to use the Logan Act, I guess it comes as no surprise that it never seems to be the right to solution to whatever particular problem seems seems to arise. But in the paper, you suggest that there's that there's still a problem there, and you tie that to what you call the the take care clause. So maybe you could talk about what that is and what it does and, and why you think it's relevant under these circumstances. Absolutely. So the take care clause of Article 2 obligates the executive branch to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, right? At the most basic level, what that requires is that that Congress enjoy policymaking primacy within the federal system, right? So the executive branch can't entirely refuse to enforce a federal statute because that particular statute is believed to embody poor policy, right? Congress gets to set the policy uh, judgment. Congress makes the policy judgments uh, on behalf of the United States and the executive enforces that will uh, as expressed through the bicameralism and presentment process, right? So in the past decade, there's been um, sort of a spate of really fascinating take care clause articles written, I think, largely in response to some of President Obama's key non-enforcement initiatives. Here I'm thinking in particular of DACA and DAPA, which are highly relevant for other reasons now. Um, and with those particular memoranda, President Obama was an, uh, articulating um, openly the ways in which his administration would use their prosecutorial discretion, given the reality that not literally everyone who violates the immigration laws, you know, can be deported, right? So through DAPA and DACA, um, President Obama sought to sort of explain to the world um, how his sort of um, line-level enforcers would use their enforcement discretion. Um, some of the scholars that I mentioned think that this violates the take care clause because, in their view, this effectively um, licenses, you know, unlawful behavior on a prospective basis. It affects it effectively, in their view, greenlights um, violations of federal law in a way that the executive just doesn't have the authority to do because the executive is supposed to enforce the law. Other scholars disagree and think there that there is you know, great virtue in 
um, being transparent about the way in which administrations are exercising their prosecutorial discretion. Um, I, I don't take you know a definitive view on that particular constitutional debate, but what I want to do is unsettle the um, assumed distinction between case-by-case non-enforcement and programmatic and deliberate non-enforcement, right? So Mm. basically everyone assumes that prosecutorial discretion is perfectly compatible with the take care clause. The the thought is that administrations don't need to prosecute literally everyone who violates a law. You know, not all violations are equally reprehensible. Resources often won't allow for full prosecution. So, So the reality is that, you know, some people who commit federal crimes just you know, go free. They don't actually have to serve any present time. Um, so the Logan Act is an interesting uh, example here because in my view, the repeated use of, of individualized enforcement discretion over a very long period of time, i.e. 220 years, has led to a state in which, as I mentioned earlier, the Logan Act just is no longer regarded as federal law or enforceable federal law. Like the the past practice in an entirely um, episodic and sort of incremental and reactive basis rather than a deliberate and programmatic basis has stripped the, the Logan Act of any remaining vitality such that the thought of enforcing it is a total non-starter. In, in my view, that is a blatant separation of powers problem. It, it distorts the um, the assumption that Congress is supposed to set policy. The president is supposed to execute that policy. And it arguably violates the take care clause as well. Um, mm. Because I think the clause imposes a, a generation spanning obligation on the executive as an institution to ensure that particular statutes are enforced. And that just hasn't happened with the Logan Act. Okay. Okay. So if I understand you correctly, then there's like a debate over whether the executive is constitutionally authorized to simply say, I'm not going to enforce this legislation as written at all because I think it's bad legislation. And then there's not so much there, or maybe even no debate over whether the executive has discretion whether or not to prosecute particular cases. Um, and you think that the the Logan Act kind of fits in sort of to a different place here. I, I'm wondering, are there other reasons the executive might legitimately or potentially illegitimately refuse to implement particular congressional legislation? The reasons that I think would be a legitimate would be if they felt that there was a constitutional problem with enforcing the act, especially if that um, putative constitutional problem uh, were to trench on the executive's uh, on executive authority. You know, for example, the president's ability to say conduct foreign relations. Um, I also think it would be um, perfectly legitimate in individualized cases to uh, decline to enforce particular law because of evidentiary concerns. Um, the the weird thing is with what what I'm calling non enforcement by accretion or incremental non enforcement, it's hard to offer um, any sort of account of reasons for non-enforcement that would be legitimate because it's really awkward even to begin aggregating, you know, the reasons for, for non-enforcement. It, it, it like almost makes no conceptual sense to ask whether, you know, failing to enforce the Logan Act for non-constitutional reasons, reasons is, a, uh, is constitutionally permissible across the range of outcomes because, you know, <laughs> there have been like an infinitude of, of reasons given or not given in uh, what I'm trying to do in this paper um, is to, um, I guess, negate 
constitutional concerns as an explanation for non-enforcement, because I, I just don't think that those actually have been the reason why presidents have declined to enforce the act. And in fact, if it were the reason, there is a, a congressionally prescribed mechanism for informing Congress of those sorts of constitutional concerns through a uh, statute at 28 USC 530D, which has been um, used time and again since the 1970s. Right. So once the constitutional basis for non-enforcement has been removed, it's a possible explanation. There's lots and lots of other stuff that could be motivating uh, non-enforcement of the act. And I think just <laughs> whatever the reasons are, um, especially since they've since administrations across the decades have utterly eschewed any efforts at transparency and enforcement, they routinely say things like "no comments," "I don't want to get into that," you know, th- this. Subject is, makes me deeply uncomfortable. Um, it, it seems to me that that, that utter failure um, to to enforce the act across a range of circumstances, coupled with uh, a failure to offer any sort of constitutionally grounded or otherwise persuasive reason for failing to enforce the act, um, it, uh, gives rise to to a separation of powers problem and a take care clause problem. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the the dozen reasons you elaborate or enumerate as well as all the kind of like subsidiary related reasons, create a situation that's so different from what President Obama, for example, found himself in with DACA and DAPA, where it was like he could cleanly articulate what he saw as being the policy problem and the specific rationale why he wasn't going to pursue it. But in the case of the Logan Act, it's so messy from the executive perspective. I mean, there's like, there's like practical incentives and pragmatic incentives and, you know, circumstantial incentives not to pursue, uh, you know, not to explain why it's not being pursued, that the executive just isn't in a position to do it. I mean, if the executive can't kind of state those kinds of rationales, who, who can? <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny that you ask that because, the, the particular executive actors that are often asked, you know, why why aren't you enforcing this act? You know, it appears that someone has violated the law. It appears that enforcement is called for. What they typically do is say, you know, th- that's a question for the Department of State. And the, the Department of State will say, that's a question for the Justice Department. Um, so um, it's not obvious whether any other actor in the federal system has any responsibility to account for the executive's failure uh, to enforce the act. And, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, my paper will, you know, shine a light on failure to offer explanations and will actually offer some insight into the, uh, you know, the, the various reasons for failing to enforce the act. Um, I, I just want to make one, one additional quick point on this. Um, I guess as, a, as an asterisk to what I said earlier, that non-enforcement of the Logan Act um, is, is, you know, undemocratic in a sense because Congress gets to set policy, right? There's also sort of a strange sense in which, the complete non-enforcement of a federal statute over a very long period of time in an incremental way have maybe an even greater democratic pedigree than a statute enacted at a particular moment in time long ago, right? So what we have here is lots and lots of administrations, you know, that were elected at discrete moments in time, individually refraining from bringing enforcement actions against people, right? And they, they were elected by the whole country. And it's it's as if we as a polity have just determined that you know certain actions do not in fact merit the sanctions that Congress has prescribed for them. So you know, query whether the the, the legislative policymaking supremacy justification for enforcement 
actually, you know, has, you know, has purchase here. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if you could talk about the constitutional question really briefly as well. Because I mean, I, I agree with you that, I mean, I think you've shown pretty conclusively that, you know, there's a mechanism for the executive to raise constitutional concerns and that mechanism simply has not been used. But I can't help but wonder if like the same kinds of structural incentive problems that present the exec that prevent the executive from objecting on policy grounds to the Logan Act also apply to the executive raising constitutional objections. I mean, do you think there are constitutional objections that could legitimately be raised? And are there aspects of the Logan Act that could survive them? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of commentators, uh, whenever these Logan Act incidents arise, sort of reflexively say, you know, this this very old statute is, you know, it's outmoded, it's archaic, it's it's stupid, it's a museum piece, and it would obviously fail a, uh, if a First Amendment challenge or a vagueness challenge were brought. Um, I'm actually pretty skeptical of those, those sort of pat assertions. I think those questions, if they actually made their way to the Supreme Court, would probably divide the court. Um, it, so, so I'll say just uh, as a preface to this, it's not obvious to me um, uh, so I'll start with the, I'll start with the vagueness point. So it's not obvious to me that that um, that analysis, that vagueness analysis, would be undertaken in the ordinary like statutory interpretation sense. So it seems to me that certain of the act's terms, and I uh, I did I didn't recite the entire statute because it's quite long, and your listeners would fall asleep. Um, but certain certain of the act's terms, like um, which types of entities qualify as foreign governments or their officers or agents. Or you know which type of policy, which types of international disagreements arise to the level of a dispute or controversy with the United States? It seems to me that the executive's um, factual determinations on those questions might actually have to be taken as conclusive by a court. Um, th- and, I, and I'm building off of an, a wonderful article that Tara Grove wrote in 2015 called "The Lost History of the Political Question Doctrine." I think. Um, the, the proper interpretation or just the interpretation of this statute might actually uh, require, um, you know, if it were presented to a court, a court might have to defer to the, the representations made by the executive branch in those, in those respects. I'm not certain on that. So like, let's assume that ordinary vagueness analysis would apply, right? So the two key questions that vagueness doctrine is designed to address um, is are assuring that regulated parties have both of what a statute prohibits and in uh, making sure that statutes aren't written so amorphously that the enforcers um, have you know, untrammeled discretion to enforce them in arbitrary and discriminatory manners. Um, so what's so bizarre about this is that it's the complete failure to enforce the Logan Act that gives rise to you know, fair notice. Like everyone understands that violating the law has no criminal consequences and, and prosecuting anyone under the act would be just like the height of unfair notice and prosecuting anyone would be just like almost the definition of arbitrary enforcement because no one would have been prosecuted in analogous circumstances in the past. Um, unfortunately, it's not clear to me that there's any foothold in vagueness doctrine for those sorts of um, practical practical concerns to come into play, to, to bring the history of non-enforcement into that. So the question then becomes, um, is the text of the act you know, worded so capaciously that people don't have fair notice in such that there's a structural likelihood of arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. Um, that, that's a really complicated question. It would have a lot of strands to untangle because there's a lot of verbiage uh, that would be an issue. But I would just point readers to this uh, great lawfare piece from 2017 by Daniel Hemmel and Eric Posner um, on 
hypothesizing uh, potential limiting constructions in the event that a vagueness challenge was brought to the Logan Act. I don't think I agree with like every single one of their specific conclusions, but I think the premise of their piece is right, that courts would be um, uh, inclined to try, they're generally inclined to try to salvage uh, federal legislation if, if a principled limiting construction can be supplied. And I think there's a very good chance that either that would happen or um, in the instances in which it wouldn't be obvious what the limiting construction was, a court might just have to defer to the executive's representation for the reasons that I spelled out earlier. Um, moving on, um, just very briefly to the First Amendment question, if I may. So it, it's not clear to me that um, the First Amendment actually protects the kind of speech that the Logan Act regulates. So in a 2010 case called United States versus Stevens, the court laid out a methodology for determining which kinds of expression actually you know, as a threshold matter, enjoy or constitute, quote, the freedom of speech. And with the Logan Act, there is a very long history of regulation here, which is uh, one, one touchstone for um, categories of expression that may not enjoy First Amendment protection. Um, you know, maybe that lengthy history of regulation doesn't count because it's been accompanied by an equally long history of non-enforcement. And maybe it doesn't count because of its close temporal association with the reviled Alien and Sedition Acts. But I just wanted to raise the possibility that that the speech regulated by the Logan Act might not enjoy First Amendment protection at all. Um, so assuming the First Amendment is implicated as a threshold matter, the act definitely would amount to a content-based restriction on speech. You know, if you speak with foreign governmental officials about yesterday's World Cup game, that's definitely not prohibited. But if you speak to them um, in a way that's designed to influence the measures or conduct of that government in relation to disputes or controversies with the United States or to defeat the measures of the United States, that's a felony. Right. So it's definitely a content-based restriction on speech such that the act would have to satisfy strict scrutiny. Um, and the question there is whether the act serves a compelling governmental interest and whether the act is the least restrictive means of advancing that compelling governmental interest. I think there's a very good chance that the court would conclude that a compelling governmental interest does underlie the Logan Act. I mean, we're not talking about just ordinary speech here. This is speech conveyed directly to a foreign sovereign on matters as to which there is presently a dispute or controversy between that country and the United States, or in a way designed to defeat the measures of the United States. Right, that's some pretty serious stuff. Um, um, on the tailoring question, whether the act is the least restrictive means of, of advancing whatever the government's interest is, I think that's where it kind of gets tricky. And I guess it would depend on the level of generality in which you defined the government's interest. But it, I think it would be ironic, actually, if if the act failed First Amendment scrutiny because it was too under-inclusive, right? So if your principle is private citizens shouldn't be able to subvert um, the executive's foreign policy objectives, the Logan Act does not advance that interest um, as fully as it could because it doesn't cover all matters in which the executive has a foreign policy interest, you know, disputes or controversies between just any two nations that haven't yet ripened into a dispute or controversy with the United States, you know, people can talk to those governments about their things all day, assuming the executive position on those things doesn't rise to the level of a measure of the United States. So, um, sorry, sorry, those were so long, but the short answer on both of them is it's really difficult to know whether the provides so, I mean, it seems to me then the kind of the, the deep, intractable in some ways question here is, 
if the Logan Act is at least, let's assume, like partially enforceable to a greater or lesser degree, but the executive just clearly historically and practically doesn't want to enforce it, but for structural reasons, can't functionally explain why it doesn't want to enforce it. Like what should happen? Who should do something? Why should they do it? And what should they do? <laughs> oh, I mean, answering this question, it reminds me of, you know, the question that the moderators proposed to the Democratic candidates the other night. You know, if you're president and Mitch McConnell is still a Senate majority leader, you know, what are you going to do? You know, there's, there's just no good answer here, right? Because we're, um, we're in this weird sort of pathological stalemate where Congress has passed a law, the executive has refused to enforce it such that it has become practically unenforceable. Um, and because no prosecution is likely to result, there's, there's not, there's no like catalyzing event. There's no stimulus um, to, to sort of induce Congress to get off its button act. Um, and that, that's part of the reason why no repeal uh, legislation has, has happened or, you know, at any point over the past 220 years. Um, so the, the possible candidates for uh, excising the Logan Act from the, the U.S. or from the U.S. code are very few. One of them would be just any time Congress undertakes a general revision of the federal criminal code, maybe just, you know, sneak Logan Act repeal in there somewhere. And this was actually tried in 1978, but a single uh, U.S. senator from Mississippi, James Allen, you know, noticed the omission and said, no, 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 um, the Logan Act, you know, needs to continue to exist because we don't want to send the message that it's okay to go abroad and undermine the president in foreign policy matters. And, and Ted Kennedy, the leading champion of Logan Act repeal, um, just sort of caved as, as a way of avoiding the filibuster. You know, another option would be either a freestanding repeal bill, which I think is very unlikely for the reasons I already gave, or um, just in any other legislation, just hiding you know, a repeal measure um, just tacked on to some other uh, piece of legislation. I think that would be like a highly untransparent and deeply undemocratic thing to do, but I would probably support it um, mm -hmm. because I just don't know what other way of, of getting rid of the Logan Act that there might be. And any, and I certainly don't want it to happen through a prosecution because given the very lengthy history of non-enforcement, I just think it would be hugely unfair to the first person who, who is prosecuted, given that you know, just countless people in similar circumstances wouldn't have felt those, those same consequences. And just, just to tag on one thing, a, a thought that, I, that just occurred to me is that not, not two months ago, President Trump um, stood before cameras and said that John Kerry has violated the Logan Act. He said that three times and, quote, he ought to be prosecuted. <laughs> so I guess just as a supplement to what I just said, it's at least conceivable that John Kerry would have standing to sue for injunctive relief um, uh, if he believes that the Logan Act is unconstitutional. Uh, but, but that's the only time in American history, as far as I'm aware, that a sitting president has accused someone of violating the Logan Act. So um, this would seem to be uh, a unique situation for standing if, if there ever were to be such a case. Oh, my. Okay. So, I mean, in, in closing, Daniel, um, in a, in, what I took away from your paper was that there are these profound incentives, deep-rooted incentives for the in executive not to pursue Logan Act prosecutions. Now, of course, you know, President Trump may very well be the exception to that, as he seems to be the exception in so many other ways. And perhaps he will be the first to bust right through all of those structural incentives and, and really bite the bullet. Um, but it also seems like there are a lot of incentives 
for Congress not to want to act as well. I mean, it seems like the, you know, the presence of the Logan Act is rhetorically valuable for Congress as well. I mean, what's the likelihood, what's the reasonable likelihood of anything happening here? And if there are just, if there just is this kind of structural gridlock that, prevents fixing this problem. Should we worry about that? Should that be like a sign for future Congresses to like, or something that they should think about when passing legislation? I mean, like, let's avoid another Logan Act problem, as it were. I mean, like, what should we learn from this? Yeah. So on the first question, I think it is extremely unlikely that anything will happen anytime soon um, concerning you know, an, an amendment or repeal of the Logan Act. So aside from the, just the fact that I think a prosecution, an actual prosecution would probably be necessary for, for legislative action to take place in this arena, there are, as you mentioned, real structural incentives to do nothing, right? So the Logan Act, although it is no longer regarded by and large as, as an enforceable law of the United States, um, it still functions as sort of a powerful stand-in for this idea that there's one president at a time and, you know, people shouldn't be going around and thwarting, you know, the executive branch's foreign policy. So th- the continued existence of the Logan Act enables um, the president's critics in Congress and in society more generally um, to accuse, you know, certain people of lawbreaking, right? It, it takes this norm that, you know, in the absence of the Logan Act would have to be justified on other grounds and channels it into this um, this rhetoric of criminality. Um, th- so I think there is actually like an interest group um, that that has a deep interest um, in the Logan Act continuing to exist. And it, it doesn't cut in any particular partisan direction. Um, so at any particular moment, it seems um, like half of Congress or a little more than half will have a vested interest in the Logan Act continuing to exist and half will, you know, think otherwise. So I am just, I come out of this experience deeply pessimistic that there's an easy way to resolve this weird interbranch stalemate. And that, tra- that allows me to transition into answering your second question, which is like, what can Congress do um, in the future, if anything, to make sure that this doesn't happen? Um, I suppose that if, if they wanted, they could include in their legislation um, expectations about the level of enforcement or even uh, to obligate the president to enforce a particular statute at certain levels. I mean, that would that would be part of the statute that the executive, you know, had a constitutional duty to execute, right? Um, but they didn't do that with the Logan Act. Um, but they, they did, the Senate, in fact, did do maybe the next best thing, which was in 1980, when um, former Attorney General Ramsey Clark and some others went to Tehran at the height of the Iranian hostage crisis uh, to try to get the prisoners released. Um, the Senate passed by voice vote a resolution that the Logan Act be enforced in the face of these ostensible violations. The Carter administration, unsurprisingly, did nothing. But, you know, I mean, it's it's like we're in Youngstown Box 3 territory here. So, like, Congress is constitutionally entitled to have its laws enforced. Um, it continues to say, we want our laws enforced, and the executive is acting directly contrary to a continued congressional preference. Um, so, you know, that may be something that I, I visit in future work, you know, how can, how can Congress, if it doesn't do something at the front end like that, are there ways of signaling um, its preferred um, you know, level of law execution? Are there ways of getting Congress involved in the proper calibration of enforcement in ways that don't actually violate the separation of powers? Because, of course, Congress can't formally involve itself in, in law execution. Um, a number of Supreme Court cases make that clear. 
So yeah, um, I, I have no good answer to your question. I'm not sure what we do from here. And it's not entirely clear how to solve the problem in the future. Well, that's wonderful for your future scholarship. And uh, I look forward to reading follow-up papers in the same subject because I, I really enjoyed this one very much. And I enjoyed talking to you about it as well, Daniel. Yeah, thanks for those kind words. And it was a, it was a lot of fun being on this program. Thank you.